Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome back to another episode of SCOTUS 101. It's been a relatively quiet week at the court, but there are a few orders, oral arguments, and opinions that we need to discuss. Are you ready, GC? Absolutely. Let's dive on in. Great. Uh, So for the orders this week, there is one new grant in the case of Thompson v. Clark. In this case, Larry Thompson brought a Section 1983 action, which is a federal civil rights lawsuit, against NYPD officers for unreasonable seizure after they arrested him, and he was detained in jail for two days before the charges against him were ultimately dismissed. The justices are being asked to decide whether a plaintiff must show that the criminal proceedings ended in a way that is not inconsistent with his innocence, or whether a plaintiff must show that the criminal proceedings ended in a way that shows he was actually innocent. The latter is, of course, much harder to show. There were no oral arguments this week, and the justices aren't scheduled to hear arguments again until the week of March 22nd. But did you hear the interesting news about the uh, justices being vaccinated, GC? I did. Well, what we found out from the court's public information officer is that all of the justices have now been fully vaccinated. This has led to speculation about whether the court will resume in-person arguments for their April sitting. My guess is probably not, since it's likely that all of the court staff and the advocates have not yet been fully vaccinated, not to mention travel and childcare difficulties many will face. It seems more likely that in-person arguments will resume with the court's new term in the fall, but of course, we haven't yet had any official word from the court. This information did, however, prompt an interesting debate on Twitter over the efficacy of the telephonic arguments. While Denniston, the dean of the Supreme Court's press corps, wasn't shy about making his views known, calling on the justices to, quote, do away with the failed experiment of remote hearings. He said, when a decision is being made by a multiple judge court with each judge having equal authority, the aim is to maximize the exchange of views among the judges. He said the current remote format is anything but a conversation. It's a performance. Zach, that strikes me as... Pretty rich, because to call the previous free-for-all approach a conversation and not a performance is not a... How do I put this? I don't think that works. There's a little uh, cognitive dissonance there. (laughs) There we go. That's the word I'm looking for. Well, you'll be glad to know, GC, that you weren't the only one who felt this way. Uh, Many individuals on Twitter, including law professors and advocates, push back against Lyle's characterization. In fact, John Neiman, who's the former Alabama Solicitor General, said that the biggest difference he's noticed between the in-person and remote arguments is that now the justices' questions seem more designed to help them personally understand the case and the arguments uh, rather than to toss performative questions (laughs) out at the argument. Others also noted that it has allowed productive questioning from all of the justices and that the addition of questions from Justice Clarence Thomas, who has traditionally asked very few questions at in-person arguments, has been a welcome development. 
And in fact, some of the back and forth on Twitter even delved into the purpose of oral arguments and whether and how often they actually impact the outcome of a case. Obviously, this seems like the beginning of a very interesting conversation surrounding oral arguments, best practices, and whether any of the practices from the telephonic arguments should be retained going forward. It's an interesting and important conversation, and frankly, it's one I look forward to continuing to have. That brings us to the one opinion of the week in the Uzuebunam case. Now, the question there is, if the government deprives you of one of your civil rights and you sue and all you want is a dollar in nominal damages and recognition that your rights were violated, can you bring that suit? In an 8-1 opinion by Justice Clarence Thomas, the court held that you can. The court held that nominal damages alone satisfy the element of standing called redressability. Now, that's the requirement that for a justiciable case to exist, the court must be able to actually grant relief. In this case, a public college had a policy that barred students from speaking to fellow students about their religious beliefs in a public square or even in the school's free speech zone. One of the petitioners had tried to speak about his faith to fellow students and was stopped, told to go to the free speech zone, and then also stopped. Another one of the petitioners just decided that it wasn't worth it to speak in the first place, and so he chose not to because of the policy. So both petitioners here sought injunctive relief to strike down the school's policy and nominal damages. The school eventually abandoned its policy after fighting pretty hard to say that they didn't have a right to speak in the first place, and then moved to dismiss their lawsuits as moot. The students argued that their claims were not moot because they sought nominal damages to remedy the violation of their First Amendment right. The school said nominal damages are just symbolic, they're just a declaration of victory, and they are not real redress. The court was careful to explain, however, that a nominal damages claim is not a guaranteed entry to court. All the other elements of standing must be present. In this case, the court held that the first student, the one who tried to speak but was stopped, satisfied the other elements because he showed a complete violation of his First Amendment right. As to the second student, the one who refrained from speaking in the first place, the court remanded the case and instructed the district court to determine whether he actually suffered an injury. Now, Chief Justice Roberts issued a solo dissent. That is his first ever solo dissent since joining the court in 2005. That's shocking, GC. I can't believe <laughs> this was his first solo dissent. I, I know. It's, it's, I mean, it's, ba it's shocking that, that, it, that it, the chief – I mean, this doesn't happen – historically very often at all, that the chief justice is, is dissenting solo. Right. Uh, I'm very strange that this is the one that Roberts picked, but right. go figure. His position was nominal damages are not an effectual relief. He stated that in his opinion, this was an invitation for courts to issue advisory opinions, and that because the lower court could not, in his opinion, grant effectual relief, the court should have held that the case was moot. GC, I heard uh, Kristen Wagner, uh, she's from ADF, she represented the plaintiffs and argued the case at the Supreme Court. And after the decision came down, uh, she was talking about implications this case could have in other contexts outside of the First Amendment context. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, that I think is why you saw 8-1 in this case, why this was nearly unanimous case for both uh, the conservative justices and the progressive justices. It's sort of been a historical trend that the more liberal justices will expand litigation remedies for civil rights violations. But as you see local governments moving in a more pro-censorship, stronger speech restrictions direction, especially at 
colleges, which when they're public are government institutions. You've now got the conservatives on board. Well, that's right. And I think, you know, Kristen was also saying that anytime uh, in a, an allegation of a constitutional violation is raised, uh, whether it's a, a Eighth Amendment claim, use of excessive force, a cruel and unusual punishment, anything along those lines, this decision could have important implications in those contexts as well. And in a case like this, you know, there really aren't compensatory damages. How, how do you value how do you put a dollar sign on the uh, harm that you suffer when you're told that you can't speak? There are all sorts of creative ways that you could, like they talked about at oral arguments, value the, the amount of his bus ticket to campus. <laughs> but, I mean, that's almost ridiculous, right, that you would say your First Amendment free speech is, is worth only the, the price of a bus ticket and right. not the, you know, the symbolic recompense of, of uh, nominal damages. So there you have it. No, I was glad to see uh, Justice Thomas author this decision, and uh, I was glad to see it was, a, was an 8-1 decision with the, most of the justices agreeing with, uh, with Justice Thomas. Well, moving on to our interview, this week we're not joined by one of our favorite civil servants, but rather one of our colleagues here at, at the Heritage Foundation, and we're going to have a more substantive discussion of the Bostock opinion and what it means going forward. Zach and I are joined today by our newest colleague here at the Heritage Foundation's Mies Center, Sarah Parshall-Perry. We're delighted to introduce her to you because Sarah is an expert on civil rights laws, which is especially relevant to our discussion today. Sarah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So, Sarah, we invited you on to talk about the impact of Bostock versus Clayton County, where the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision by Justice Gorsuch, held that Title VII, which forbids discrimination because of sex, applies to sexual orientation and transgender status. But before we get there, tell us a little bit about your background and how you became an expert in civil rights laws. Well, I am recently here from the Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights. I was senior counsel to the Assistant Secretary for Civil Rights in the Trump administration and was tasked with interpreting and guiding school districts across the country on Title VI, Title IX, any of the implicated civil rights laws. And that really was a perfect match for me of my interests and not only my professional background, having gotten my start in employment law discrimination with Title VII when I was a new associate, but also my own status as a mother. I have three children in public education, all of whom who benefit from the protections of federal civil rights law, two children um, who benefit from special education protections in Section 504, and my daughter, who competes athletically, is protected by Title IX. So this was really sort of a perfect match of, of skill sets. I am very passionate about civil rights law. My father was a civil rights law attorney. I did go through a rather circuitous route. I was convinced that I was going to go into federal criminal prosecution. Uh, I felt it was sort of a sexier path to go. Um, and of course, civil rights. My father had worked for nonprofits for many, many years representing the little guy. And I thought, well, I like that. I like having those causes to advocate for. But, you know, there there isn't enough panache that's associated with that. So I decided I was going to meet in the middle and went into uh, employment law discrimination and particularly False Claims Act cases as well um, and did some business 
insurance litigation as well as some maritime and admiralty, which is a fun specialty, I will say, and was able to uh, arrest maritime vessels under the Federal Maritime Lien Act. I highly recommend it if you can. It is uh, it's like a scene out of a movie. You get to march up the gangplank <laughs> with an interpreter and a federal marshal, and uh, you feel very important slapping an arrest warrant on the steering wheel of a ship. So <laughs> I'm having flashbacks to my clerkship because uh, I was in Miami at a district court and so we would get a lot of those emergency motions since there are so oh, yes. in there. Yes, I was uh, a regular down at our federal district courthouse doing exactly that before before they would remove themselves from the dock and the ability to actually attach the vessel for unpaid bunkers and things of that sort. So, so how did you make the transition from maritime employment law? Uh, you were in-house counsel for an advertising agency for a while. How did you transition from that to civil rights? Well, I think it was actually having my children, um, making sure that the world applies, that this nation applies its civil rights protections equally for everyone and by the letter of the law is faithful to vigorously enforce the civil rights laws of the most free nation in the world really gave me sort of re- of a renewed interest in representing and working with individuals whose civil rights had been violated. My father's um, most infamous case, I would say, was a, was a case that he handled against the Smithsonian Institution, an individual, um, an African-American gentleman who or whom had sought him out for a Title VII employment discrimination claim um, for the creation of a racially hostile environment. He was threatened repeatedly. He ran a gift shop inside the Smithsonian Institution. It raised a number of very interesting questions. And as I got older, I realized really the impact of the appropriate interpretation and protective boundaries, the parameters of appropriate application of federal civil rights law. So the older I got, my work included uh, six years at the Family Research Council, where I had an opportunity to build some coalitions with other attorneys who were concerned with the plague of anti-Semitism in higher education. And we found that that was a particular uh, emphasis that the past administration wanted to focus on, which I found very heartening to make sure that the executive order of the past president on Uh, anti-Semitism as race discrimination and national origin discrimination was vigorously enforced. I found it very impactful. And so when the Department of Education came to me and said, would you like to work in the Civil Rights Office? It was really sort of a natural partnership to go from a mother who believes that her children also have the virtues of being protected by these laws to watching a father enforce these laws, advocate for their appropriate interpretation, working with other attorneys who were doing the exact same thing to prevent race and national origin discrimination in college campuses, and then making my way to the Department of Education. It was rather circuitous, but um, it was the combination of a number of different factors and life experiences that all combined to put me where I am. So let's talk about Bostock. Some listeners might not have heard our episode last year where we summarized that case. So can you give us a brief overview of it? Well, it's hard to overstate the impact that Bostock has had um, since last year. Uh, Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia, was a decision that was a 6-3 majority written by Gorsuch. He wrote the majority opinion, um, but it was a Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 case. And the alleged sex discrimination 
These were three individual cases. They were consolidated at the Supreme Court level, but they were all alleging that it was unlawful for an employer to fail or refuse to hire or to discharge an individual based on sex. And sex was to include sexual orientation and gender identity. Now, this is the first and most expansive addressing of this particular issue that the Supreme Court had ever been faced with. The term sex in federal law, obviously, the trickle down for this in federal anti-discrimination law is tremendous, but the Supreme Court did rule in favor of the employees determining that Title VII was violated when an employer intentionally fires an individual based in part on sex, regardless of whether or not there were other factors like that individual's sexual orientation or like that individual's gender identity. And so discrimination on the basis of being gay or transgender required an employee, at least in part, to treat them differently because of their biological sex. Now, I think a lot of people forget that the decision rested. It ultimately came down to an initial determination that the plain language of the term sex meant biological sex. But Gorsuch, I think, and many conservative jurists and textualist interpretations went a little bit farther than that and added the sex plus or sex in addition to And I think that's the reason that some conservatives have difficulty with the decision. It was sort of an expansive interpretation of longstanding federal anti-discrimination law. Sarah, this is Zach. I'm going to jump in uh, real quickly with a question. You know, Title VII's prohibition on discrimination has language that says discrimination is prohibited, quote, because of sex. And that same language appears elsewhere in other civil rights laws, notably Title IX, which governs education. So naturally, anyone reading Justice Gorsuch's uh, Bostock opinion might think, well, doesn't the reasoning from Bostock apply to these other statutes as well? And so my question is, uh, how would you respond to that question? This is one that we had to grapple with distinctly at the Department of Education because we were receiving a number of complaints that would come to us from female athletes who were being forced to compete alongside biological males, males who identified as female and therefore obviously based on physiological distinctions and physiological advantages were finding themselves winning more scholarships, more championships. These women felt obviously disadvantaged under the letter of the law of Title IX, which was passed in 1972, and the congressional record reflects this, to protect women, give them equal scholastic opportunities. Now, the but-for causation standard is the appropriate standard to use in interpreting all federal anti-discrimination law. But the court was very clear that they were not taking into account other related discrimination protections, such as Title IX. In fact, Gorsuch explicitly stated, rather cavalierly, I would argue, that he was not taking into account the bathroom consideration, the sports consideration, even religious liberty considerations, because there was an opportunity to raise the religious liberty issue by petitioners on appeal to the Supreme Court. They did not raise it. But 
because Title IX is distinctly different from Title VII in its mission and its purpose, because its implementing regulations include language that indicates a sex binary, each team or both sexes indicating male and female, and because Gorsuch took pains to make sure that he was not sweeping into the Bostock decision any implication, any factual hypothetical that might implicate Title IX, we would make the argument, and I think other conservatives would make the argument, that Title IX still remains outside the purview of the Bostock decision, while salient in terms of the term sex as biological sex, on that the entire panoply of anti-discrimination law still hinges. That is unchanged. But as far as Title IX is concerned, explicitly, there are too many differences and too many avoidances on the majority part to make sure that it's swept up into Bostock as well. Well, that's certainly an interesting discussion, Sarah. And, you know, I think the Fourth Circuit recently decided a case where they took the opposite view. It was a case called uh, Grimm v. Gloucester County School Board. And the Fourth Circuit there, with very little discussion, held that Bostock applied equally to Title IX. And because of that, that transgender students could not be excluded from using the bathroom of their choice. So what do you make of that decision? And really, where do you see that that case going in the future? Well, Grimm versus Gloucester County is an interesting case. It actually is on appeal currently to the Supreme Court. Uh, the petitioners have filed for cert in this case, but this is the second kick at the can. This case originally appeared before the Supreme Court, which had granted cert in this case, but based on the Trump administration's revocation of bathroom um, executive orders and regulations for transgender students, it went back down to the Fourth Circuit for reconsideration on remand. Now, the parties have flipped, the administration has flipped, and now the school board is appealing. <laughs> they have they have sought a writ of, of uh, certiorari on this. They filed their petition saying, our decision to keep bathrooms separate is consistent with Title IX. We have provided a gender-neutral bathroom for Grimm, but it was Grimm's argument that the provision of a separate and gender-neutral bathroom was discriminatory in and of itself, that the school board had taken a discriminatory interpretation of sex, that sex should mean gender identity, and in so doing, by providing a separate bathroom, it was a violation of equal protection. So where we stand now is that, again, because there was, as you mentioned, Zach, very little discussion on Title IX, it would be my argument that there was a lack of rigorous analysis on Title IX's plain text or a fair addressing of the legal consequences of the Department of Education's unique implementing regulations on Title IX. In fact, the Department of Education is to be given deference as it interprets regulations that implement Title IX because it was the process of vigorous debate on the congressional House floor. So this is something that, for me, I find distinguishable. This won't be the first bathroom case I think that we'll have to grapple with, but knowing that Grimm is distinctly before the court, there are other circuits that have ruled similarly in Ninth Circuit case as well, also similar. But again, we have to ask ourselves, does Title IX, where equal protection requires students to use 
the bathroom of their gender identity? Or is it sufficient to provide a gender neutral bathroom, which I would presuppose is a workable alternative? And again, we're lacking discussion in Grimm. So it remains to be seen how the Supreme Court will on appeal determine the right balance on Title IX as concerns bathrooms. Sarah, what does it mean in practical terms, uh, besides the context of transgender bathrooms, if Bostock applies to Title IX and other similar civil rights laws? Well, I think we're seeing sort of the anticipated outcome of that in the current debates going on uh, on Capitol Hill's concerns the Equality Act, because what we've seen in the Equality Act is sort of a jumping to the head of the line on the question of what it looks like in federal law and all federal law that relates to the definition of sex and public accommodations. We're seeing what we indicated early on was going to be an ongoing debate, an ongoing point of discussion. And while Gorsuch dismissed out of hand other considerations, particularly as concern the intersection of religious liberty and LGBTQ protections, the Equality Act aims to do what Bostock did not, which is make 59 amendments, 59 changes whole cloth to the entire panoply of federal law in which public accommodations and sex are addressed. The problem is that we're still running into this problem of religious liberty exercise, which is going to be an ongoing debate. We're going to see, particularly as concerns the the Equality Act, the gutting of RIFRA, which is the hallmark statute under which so many of these other federal statutes are permitted to allow individuals to exercise their free Um, religious protections, their free exercise protections without coming into conflict with federal law. So we're going to see if Bostock is widely applied. We're going to see ultimately from the judicial branch of government what Capitol Hill and what House Democrats are aiming to do right now with the Equality Act. It's going to fundamentally change the landscape of anti-discrimination law in America. And I would argue gut the protections of religious liberty. One of the issues that comes up in the context of Title IX is women and girls sports. Are there any cases winding their way through the lower courts uh, that involve uh, that issue within the context of Title IX's definition of sex? Well, our cases right now, as we review what's coming up through the pipeline, are more populated by the bathroom cases, the bathroom interpretations. And we've got an administration who has yet to follow through on its protections for women, its promises to be protective of female rights, of their um, legal protections, hard fought, hard won for decades stemming from Title IX in 1972, this is an administration that has made clear that even though it is pro-woman, it has elevated the notion of gender identity to a super protected class. Connecticut, we have seen the case of Selena Sewell against the Connecticut Scholastic Athletics Association. Her case has proven to be a bit of a bellwether. Everyone is watching that very closely. But This has been the tip of the spear on gender identity and its conflict, not only with religious liberty, as we previously talked about, but also as concerns 
the legal protection of women, speaking obviously as a biological woman who was herself protected by Title IX, given sex segregated opportunities in sports so that we were allowed our own scholastic opportunities, our own athletic opportunities, and speaking as the mother of an individual teenage daughter who herself benefits from Title IX, the concerns that I have with this administration's approach to the interpretation of Title IX unilaterally um, have, have been concerning. And I think they are for a number of other conservatives, but also those who adhere to the notion of common sense, that sex means biological sex, and that a statute such as Title IX that specifically separates men and women, boys and girls, discusses sex in a binary format can present a real harried situation and ultimately decimate what women have worked for decades to achieve. Well, Sarah, I think you touched on this briefly, but, you know, President Biden has issued an executive order directing all federal agencies to interpret all applicable civil rights laws basically to align with the Bostock decision. And so, as I understand it, in the context of Title IX, obviously, this means that any schools getting federal money uh, would be required to allow transgendered women uh, to compete on women and girls sports teams, to allow biological males to use girls' bathrooms. And again, the order uh, relies explicitly on Bostock and requires uh, the interpretation of Title VII to also apply to Title IX. So what do you make of this order? And have you seen any challenges uh, specifically to this order uh, taking place so far? Well, we know that there have been a number of challenges that have already been brought to the surface. In fact, the Women's Liberation Front has filed a petition for rulemaking on Title IX specifically to clarify, to get clarification from this administration's Department of Education on what the legal parameters are for women in athletics in an educational environment. They've ultimately held feet to the fire on this particular executive order saying we cannot go forward with our interscholastic opportunities and we certainly cannot be protected in private spaces like locker rooms, bathrooms, hotel rooms for overnight stays without the administration coming to terms with what was a very sweeping interpretation of Bostock. And in fact, taking a textualist approach, Gorsuch having represented himself to be a textualist. I think a lot of people were disappointed, um, feeling as though he had dropped the ball on a textualist interpretation. Ordinarily, courts should read the words of a statute as any ordinary member of Congress would have read them and look for meaning that a reasonable person would gather from the text of the law placed alongside the remainder of the body of law, what's called the corpus juris. But Textualists obviously care about the statutory purpose to the extent it is clearly apparent from the text. Statutory purpose here, as concerns Title IX, is very, very clear. And I think the rulemaking that's been brought by the Women's Liberation Front, joined by a number of conservative organizations, and again, this issue makes sort of strange bedfellows of conservatives and liberals on the issue, but it does present at least the opportunity for this administration's Department of Education to clarify exactly how far Biden's executive order will go. And what it really did is essentially telegraph to the American people where the administration was headed. It was sort of the red flag that we all saw waving, understanding that since then, 
He has appointed Rachel Levine as his assistant secretary for health and human services. That individual identifies as a woman, but is a biological man. Obviously, the elevation of individuals to very visible cabinet posts who identify a certain way is proof positive of exactly how activist this administration is going to be. Well, and you recently wrote an article for the Daily Signal where you said that this executive order, quote, may well destroy the hard-won protections of Title IX that girls and young women have enjoyed for almost 50 years. And I think that's an important point. And would you mind explaining a little bit more exactly what you meant uh, when you wrote that? All of the protections given to biological women under Title IX would be eviscerated not only through this executive order that would be implemented through each of the federal agencies within the next 100 days or so, and we're coming to the end of that in the next few weeks, but as well, the protections of women who are at the college level, women who recognize sex segregation and the protections of sex segregation in particular formats. For example, pregnancy discrimination, which can only be affiliated with a biological woman. Breastfeeding discrimination, which can only be protected in terms of a biological woman, all the implications of legal womanhood, the legislation designed to prevent sex discrimination is ultimately null and void with the inclusion of gender identity under the same umbrella as sex. So it takes the Bostock decision, the executive order, and it goes one step further, essentially placing into executive fiat the interpretation that sex not only means gender identity and sexual orientation, but as far as other laws, we consider those to be null and void as well. Multiple federal statutes that implicate sex distinctions and the recognition of a sex binary. You can begin with women's suffrage over a year, a hundred years ago. This has been the development of a body of law that has been painstakingly won, argued for, debated on the House floor, and ultimately implemented into law to give women equal opportunities. And yet, with the stroke of the pen, the administration seems to be very willing to negate all of that progress and eliminate the protections of legal biological womanhood. Sarah, if the lower courts and or the Supreme Court disagree with you and uh, they say that all of the civil rights laws, they expand Bostock to all the civil rights laws, including Title IX, is that the end of – in the context of Title IX, is that the end of women's sports as we know them? But more broadly, is that also the end of women's exclusive spaces? I would argue that it is and that is why, GC, that this is such a problematic Uh, Department of Education, why the executive order itself, as well as uh, Bostock's sort of botched textualist approach to sex in federal anti-discrimination law presents a very difficult picture going forward. I would argue, and the court has yet to consider this, and I haven't seen much said about it yet, whether there is an alternative theory of reverse discrimination. So the invalidation of Title IX would exist unless, for example, female plaintiffs, athletes, argue that they themselves, as women, have been discriminated against by competing against biological boys, turning 
Title IX on its head and actually using it instead of a defensive shield as an actual spear in this case, where they would be forced to say we are a distinct physiological disadvantage, opening sports up to become gender neutral, to allow gender identity to prevail in laws like Title IX puts us in the position to have to use this as our own defensive tactic when it comes to federal anti-discrimination law. That I see is something that will need to be explored in the future. We don't know whether or not there is a sufficient heterosexual discrimination claim basis under Title IX, but I would argue that based on what we're seeing soon in Grimm and the expansive interpretation of Bostock, that the other federal courts seem very willing to address what we know about a rulemaking potentially on the way from the Biden administration. It's going to be one that we're going to have to grapple with soon enough. Sarah, final question for you. If uh, For listeners who are interested in following these legal developments, uh, where can they go to get a good snapshot uh, of all of this information? Well, heritage.org is, of course, my favorite site. Uh, We have, as an organization, written extensively on the protections that women and individuals of conscience and federal anti-discrimination law advises and offers for individuals in this country. Uh, I also encourage individuals to follow what's currently being filed at the Supreme Court, petitions for writ, for review, that we are indicating to those who follow these developments are going to be a bit of a bellwether as to what happens next. For example, there are two cases. We anticipate they will be consolidated if the Supreme Court grants review, small versus Memphis light, gas and water, and Delbereste versus GLE Associates, both of which are Title VII religious discrimination claims. Obviously, Title VII has a religious protection. It has a religious discrimination exemption. Individuals who have religious objections have to be reasonably accommodated, according to precedent set back in 1977 with Trans World Airlines case. The parameters of undue hardship De minimis cost is ultimately the bellwether here in context with, with Title VII's religious accommodation. This is going to put some fencing around the notion of Bostock and sex, sexual orientation, gender identity, and how that conflicts against religious protections and what that would look like, practically speaking. So SCOTUS blog as well, also another great site for the listeners to go to for more information. We also have in the description to this episode several of Sarah's most recent writings on this topic. Sarah Perry, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right, Zach, are you ready for some trivia? I'm ready. Hit me with it. All right. So trivia this week, I have titled it Strange Places to Find Justices. So question number one. Are these uh, where's Waldo type questions, GC? <laughs> yes, yes. More, more, or, or more like how did Waldo get there questions. All right. Fair enough. Question number one. A lot of people know that Justice Thomas likes to hop in his RV during the summer with his wife, Ginny, and travel across the country. But Anthony Kennedy had a similar, uh, well, not similar, but he also traveled, but not quite the same way. Where did Anthony Kennedy tend to spend his summers? 
Well, I'm guessing it's not at a Cornhuskers football games with Justice Thomas. Uh, I doubt it. Who's a big Nebraska football fan, uh, I understand. Uh, I would imagine Justice Kennedy spent his summers uh, somewhere in Europe. Uh, but anything more that's specific than that, I don't know. Well, you've got the continent right. He would spend his summers teaching in Austria at the University of Salzburg. Seems like a pretty uh, pretty nice gig. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I'll take that gig. <laughs> I don't think they'll give it to me, though. <laughs> Number two. After issuing his controversial majority opinion in NFIB versus Sibelius, that's the first Obamacare decision, where did Chief Justice Roberts go? I actually know this one. He went to Malta, uh, which is an island uh, off the coast of Europe. And he said he went there because he joked uh, because he said uh, Malta was a a fortress island. And uh, after that decision, it it seemed like a good place to go. (laughs) (laughs) You're absolutely correct. Number three, William Howard Taft was the only president to serve on the Supreme Court. John Quincy Adams was nominated and confirmed to the Supreme Court, however, but he turned it down. Which president nominated him, and where was Adams when he was confirmed? So I'm doing some quick uh, back-of-the-envelope math in my head (laughs) right now. (laughs) I'm going to guess it was uh, either James Madison or James Monroe uh, who nominated him. Uh, And uh, I think uh, John Quincy Adams was an ambassador to Russia and Britain uh, before he became president. So I'll I'll give you these answers. It was either James Madison or James Monroe, and he was either in Russia or Britain. (laughs) You're you're, uh, as right as you can be with those caveats. It was James (laughs) Madison. And actually, you had both the countries right in a way. He was, at the time, Madison's minister plenipotentiary to Russia. Uh, but because, you know, of the time lapse, things had to travel by sea. There sure. was no internet back then. Not even carrier pigeons could cross that distance. Uh, he didn't find, he had been nominated and confirmed before he ever found out about it. He did not want the job. Uh, and instead, he declined and then left Russia to become the minister to Great Britain. So you had the countries right. All right. Interesting. Well, it seems like things worked out for him (laughs) after that. So, (laughs) And last up. So President Teddy Roosevelt was the first president to leave U.S. soil in 1906. The first Supreme Court justice to leave U.S. soil, however, did it much sooner. Who was it and where did he go? Well, I don't know if he... I'm assuming he was chief justice at this time, but I'm going to guess John Jay uh, because he has the uh, famous Jay Treaty (laughs) named after him. (laughs) You are absolutely correct. There apparently was no taboo about the chief justice of the Supreme Court uh, leaving his duties to act as a trade negotiator to Britain. Well done, Zach. Well, thanks, GC. Those were uh, were interesting questions and uh, maybe uh, gives me a few post-pandemic travel ideas. (laughs) (laughs) That's all we have for today, so thank you so much to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. Case is submitted.
You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.